Hello and welcome to Sports in the Waiting Room. I am your host, Chris Russo. Thank you so much for joining us. We have a lot to discuss this week. I mean, first off, we saw our Spotify wrapped release released this week. And of course, we had our, 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 you know, besides everybody getting their own for their personal listening choices, we also had our podcasts Spotify wrapped released. Of course, our podcast is produced through through Spotify for podcasters. It's really important. That's the way we want to monetize, by the way, is is the more listenership we can get through Spotify in particular, the, the more likely we are, or the closer we will get to actually monetizing the podcast. That's been a goal of ours for a little while now. But very proud of the, the increase in, in listenership this year. It was rather significant. There was a good uptick. I, I think we got a lot more attention than I'm just very grateful to to you who listen, and hopefully you can look. If you want to keep hearing this podcast, let people know about it. That's that, that's the best you can do. It's we are very very appreciative for just anyone who can listen and hopefully enjoy the podcast and continue just to spread hot gossip. That this is this is something worth listening to. It's something that goes into your homes, it goes into your ears every week. It's a strange way to put it, but that is the way I would put it, and I'm very grateful. I also actually just wanted to bring up this week, so I record this, and it should be out on December 6th, and this is not necessarily sports-related, but it's just kind of a PSA, almost. It's something I kind of harp on. Tomorrow is Pearl Harbor Day, and I just feel like it's not something that people really talk about that much anymore it's even when I was in school I think later on in school it wasn't discussed as much I don't know if it's because there are fewer people fewer and fewer people of course as as time is linear that were around for it it was 82 years ago the, the majority of the people who were alive when Pearl when the Pearl Harbor attack happened are no longer with us, at least physically. But, you know, I know people, I even have people in my own life who were still alive, albeit rather young, when that happened. And it is important because it is the start of American participation. It is the start of American participation in the worst conflict in the history of humanity, in the Second World War that cost more lives than any other conflict in human history. And it was an unprovoked, horrible attack that cost the lives of many Americans. And I just feel like it's not discussed that much. And, you know, at this point, you would have to be at least 90... You'd at least have to be 96 years, minus a day as I record this, so let's really say 90, you'd have to be 96 years old now in order to have served in World War II and still be alive. And it's, you know, so it's, it's a much more of a rarity. Gra- granted, we have, we have the advances of science and, and, and other things and health and well-being that people have taken care of each other a lot, uh, of themselves and each other a lot better. They're living longer lives. But, you know, it's still not it's still fairly rare to find someone of that age. And it should be noted, actually, that it's, it's strangely enough that this week we lost a, a fighter in World War II, a, an American veteran from World War II, who went on to have an equally impactful, well, I don't know if I'd say equally, it's, it's different, but a very impactful role on the home front in the later years and that is Mr. Norman Lear, who passed away this week at the age of 101, who was one of the greatest television writers and producers of all time, known for, what, All in the Family, The Jeffersons, I, I think Maud, I'm, try, I'm trying to remember, maybe Good Times, a number of iconic television comedies, pretty much, but shows that, you know, regardless of your political beliefs, tackled serious issues and got them into the mainstream because 
that's the, the most American way is watching television. And it's, it, it's a home for everyone. These are all funny shows that he made, but they all tackled serious issues. And regardless of what you thought of them, the most important thing was that it got people, they got people talking about these issues that had to be discussed in many ways. And he was also, I, I think it was Conan O'Brien, who's a, of whom I have a big fan who actually brought this up, who said that you look at some of these people like Norman Lear, Carl Reiner, Mel Brooks, who is fortunately still with us, several of these people, and these are some of the greatest writers, some of the, the happy, some of the people who have brought the most happiness in the world in the last half century, 60, 70 years. And these were all people who fought in the Second World War. So it, it's just an interesting correlation, and maybe not exactly coincidence, people that could find hope and laughter in tragedy. But I, I think the one, you know, funny enough, the one thing that, that stuck around through all of that was, through all, all through the Second World War, despite the constant cries that it would be canceled was baseball. Now, uh, the other leagues kept going as well. To be fair, though, there were concessions to be made that the NFL had to... The Steelers and Eagles were the same team. They were the Steagles for, I think, a few years during the war. Of course, the, the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, which was not a bad thing. It, it, was, it came out of, in, in many ways, necessity as a number of players from Major League Baseball, went over, you know, went overseas to, to fight. Joe DiMaggio, Ted Williams, Stan Musial, Hank Greenberg, a number of iconic players. But baseball still stood the, the test despite that, d despite the war. And so it's, it, it's sports getting us through tragedy. But I digress. We, we move on. We'll talk a little bit about baseball later on and a little bit about the hot stove. But we start with college football and the college football playoff. It's locked in. Michigan will face Alabama, number one versus number four, in the Rose Bowl in Pasadena. Washington will face Texas, number two and number three, respectively, in the Sugar Bowl in New Orleans, Michigan and Washington were, were pure locks. Michigan had beaten number 16 Iowa 26 to nothing to win their third consecutive Big Ten title and clinch a spot in the college football playoff for the third consecutive year, trying to win a college football playoff game for the first time ever, having lost to Georgia two years ago and TCU last year. In that game against Iowa, Blake Corum scored two touchdowns, one set up by the Samaj Morgan 87-yard punt return. J.J. McCarthy managed the game. Good, not great. Didn't turn the ball over. Went 22 of 30 for 147 yards. Michigan didn't actually do that much offensively necessarily, but considering Iowa is a great defensive team and a not-so-great offensive team, they did what they had to in Jim Harbaugh's first game back since his suspension from the controversial sign-stealing allegations, Michigan actually turned a second-half fumble and two turnovers on downs by Iowa into their last nine points. So a defense that continued to take advantage. Washington also unbeaten. Michigan 13-0, including the Big Ten title game. Washington 13-0, including their win in a much more exciting championship game the final Pac-12 title game ever. Washington holds off Oregon 34-31 to from Allegiant Stadium in Nevada. They improved to 3-0 all-time. Had Oregon won this game, odds are Washington would not have made the play. Pretty much Washington, you lose and you're out. That's what it ended up being for Georgia, who lost to Alabama 27-24 in the SEC title game. So Georgia, despite being the number one team in the country for the entire season, loses its first game in three years by only three points, and yet they still miss the college football playoff. I think they deserve to miss the college football playoff if, it, if it's only going to be a four-team playoff. But they did 
almost everything right. Almost, almost everything right. And yet Alabama got it done. Texas, of course, with a blowout victory over Oklahoma State after the disgusting revelation that a dead longhorn carcass was found on the front lawn of an Oklahoma State frat house. Really just abhorrent. And it's something that was way too far, not just for a rivalry game, but this is that that was something that was a bit bigger than sports, just a, a horrible, horrible thing. But again, it wasn't the football team's fault, and Texas really took it to Oklahoma State. A dominating victory as Quinn Ewers in the first half alone threw for 346 yards. That was already fifth most in the history of the Big 12 championship, and four touchdowns that was tied for the most ever in a Big 12 title game, just dominated from there as Texas and Alabama each finished with one loss. Alabama's loss was to Texas, of course. Florida State went unbeaten, beat Louisville 16-6 in a rainy, not-too-pretty ACC championship in Charlotte. They finished 13-0. But because they were without their starting quarterback and will be without him for the remainder of the year, will be without him for their bowl game, they are not going to the CFP. Now, I think that Florida State does deserve to make the playoff, but... On the flip side, and I know some people will say, oh, you know, it's not Power 5 school, but the non-Power 5 schools have been, I think, so unfair, unfairly treated for so long. I also think Liberty deserves to make the playoff. Liberty went unbeaten. They went 13-0. and And I know their competition isn't incredible, but if they beat Oregon in the Fiesta Bowl, I, I think they should be much like UCF. I think they should be considered a national champion by at least one poll. Because that's the closest they will get to actually being truly fairly tested. So, yeah, Florida State, yeah, if you're if you're a Knowles fan, you can complain. And I understand and agree with your frustration. But you know what? They're not the only ones who I think were treated unfairly. It's it's clearly something now where the CFP committee is saying, not only can you not get in if you're a non-Power 5 school and finish with an undefeated season, you can't get in if you are a Power 5 school, go unbeaten, and you lose your starting quarterback. Now, it might depend on the play of the backup quarterback, and I'm not going to say Tate Roadmaker was incredible against Florida or against Louisville, for, but, I mean, it's it's still remarkable. It, there is, college football is, probably makes the least sense of any of the major leagues. Because every other sport, every other league, pretty much, rewards you based on record. And college football doesn't exactly do that. Not entirely. Any other sport, you have four unbeaten teams and you have a four-team final tournament, those four teams get in. This is not the case. The flip side of the argument is that you want these games to be as entertaining as possible. And by that standard, I think the CFP committee chose correctly. I wouldn't say so in general, but I would say if you want the most entertaining games possible, 
this is probably the closest you're going to get. Poss the only other possibility is maybe you play you replace one of these teams with Georgia. But, you, you know, I, Georgia didn't necessarily deserve it as much as Alabama or Texas. So, it is what it is. Ultimately, it's going to be it's going to be pretty exciting because Michigan has not won a national championship since 1997. Texas has not won since Vince Young. That was I think 2004, if memory serves me, or 2005, if memory serves me correctly. I want to say that was actually the last game Keith Jackson ever called. Washington has not won since 1992, and of course, Alabama has the longest drought of all. Clearly. They haven't won since 2020, which, of course, by Alabama standards, is a long time. They haven't won in three years. And the last time Alabama had a national championship drought longer than three years was before Nick Saban was their head coach. Between 1992 and 2009, when Saban won his first national championship with the program. So it should be very exciting to watch, regardless. Now, there are a couple of things to, to bring up besides the actual competition for the CFP title. First off, the Heisman finalists are Jaden Daniels, Michael Penix Jr., Bo Nix, and Marvin Harrison Jr. Now, only Penix will play in the CFP out of these four players. That's not really the entire point of the, of the trophy. And you've got four really good players here, but I argue it should be Daniels, and that's my prediction, because he finished with nearly 5,000 total yards, and he finished with 50 total touchdowns on the year. For an LSU program that, no, was not as good as Alabama or Georgia, maybe even Tennessee or Missouri, but he carried that team, carried the program, and it's he, he would make a lot of sense. So my vote's Jaden Daniels. And then one more thing regarding college football. Ohio State quarterback Kyle McCord enters the transfer portal. Rather surprisingly, enters the transfer portal after his first season as a starter at Ohio State. Had backed up C.J. Stroud for two years. And he had a really good year. 3,170 yards, 24 touchdowns, 6 interceptions. Buckeyes finished 11-1, was not incredible in the de facto Big Ten East title game at Michigan through a couple of picks, but also looked very strong at times. I, I didn't think he was that impressive early on in the year. I got, I think, my first real look at him in the Ohio State-Michigan game, and I gained a lot of respect for him and his game. He's, he's, he is not bad. So I'm especially surprised that that he is transferring out. Now he is a Philadelphia native, and I'm just spitballing here. Now if he were to transfer to Ohio from Ohio State, I can't imagine he'd transfer to a non-power five school. So the the only power non the only CF or FBS program in Philadelphia is Temple. I'm going to rule them out. Next closest is probably either Maryland or Rutgers. I'm going to rule them out, too, even though they're Power 5 schools. Not nearly as established as Ohio State. The one I think that's probably closest to Philadelphia, that's remotely close in terms of name recognition and talent, I would say is Penn State which is probably, I don't know, three hours from his home, I would think, something to that extent, two hours from his house, something to that extent. So Penn State could be a place where he could end up. Now, I think he would have better protection and better coaching at Ohio State and probably still a better chance to win a national championship. Obviously, Michigan, Ohio, Michigan and Ohio State for a while. The truth is, in the history of the Big Ten, there are no two schools more successful than Michigan and Ohio State 
probably probably in that order, but in more recent memory, it's been fairly even. Michigan's dominated the last three years. It was Ohio State for you know better part of a decade before that, at least within the Big Ten. But Penn State is right there. I mean, Penn State is not far off. It, it seems that, like they are the most dominant team in the Big Ten besides those real, those two big powerhouses. And it's a program that's won national championships before, clearly. Regardless of how things may have ended with Joe Paterno, that was a powerhouse program. They've done very well, albeit not national championship well, under James Franklin. And I think that could be a place where he could end up. And Drew Aller, not bad. He had a better touchdown-to-pick ratio. He threw one less touchdown, but threw only one pick on the year. However, he threw about 1,000 fewer yards than McCord did. So maybe that is a place where Penn State could gamble, bring in McCord, even risk Aller leaving. Aller's a year younger, but... Maybe Penn State takes that gamble. I'm surprised that McCord is leaving, but that point, I guess, does not matter at this juncture. Moving on to pro football, I want to talk about a few games from this week. For one, you have the Arizona Cardinals who released tight end Zach Ertz. They stunned the Pittsburgh Steelers on the road, and it may have hurt their draft chances or their shot at getting the number one pick, but they stunned the Steelers. By a score of 24 to 10 in Pittsburgh, as former Steeler, U Pitt alum, and Pittsburgh native James Connor runs for 105 yards on 25 carries, scores two touchdowns. Some unfortunate news, though, as Pitt quarterback, Steelers quarterback, and Connor's Pitt teammate Kenny Pickett suffers an ankle injury, should be out multiple weeks. The Steelers at 7-5 are in a four-way tie for the top wild card in the AFC with the Browns, the Colts, and the Texans. They hold the tiebreaker at the moment, and they are two games back of the Ravens for the division lead and actually, the, in turn, the conference lead with five games to play in their season. Now, the Steelers play the Patriots this week, that's a, a very winnable game. It's at home against a Patriot team that is two and ten, which is absolutely remarkable. Mitch Trubisky can get the job done. Didn't play too poorly. Still a serviceable quarterback. But the following four weeks to conclude their season are rather difficult. For one, they go to Indianapolis for a 4:30 game. They host the Bengals who are looking better with Jake Browning. I would still favor the Steelers in that one, but they are the Bengals are looking decent after this past week. We'll talk about that in a bit. Then they go to Seattle on New Year's Eve. That's not an easy game. It has been reported Kenny Pickett will be back for Week 18. So he's going to miss the next four games, three of which are difficult, frankly. The Steelers should be, at worst, 8-8. Eight and eight probably going into that last week. I wouldn't be surprised whatsoever if they take the Colt game and the and the Bengal game. I it, you know, you very well see them at 10 and 6 going into last week. And you know, you never know if the Ravens fall off because week 18 is in Baltimore. And that could really decide some things. Plus, the Steelers are 3 and 1 in the division right now. The Ravens are 3 and 2 and if the Steelers beat the Ravens on the road, they will actually have won the season series. So if the Ravens can somehow falter a little bit, if the Steelers can get some help, they could actually maybe still win the division. They'll, they'll need some help before Week 18, but that is quite possible. Moving on, the Eagles signed Shaquille Leonard, formerly of the Colts. However, they get blown out by the San Francisco 49ers at home by a score of 42 to 19 in what I would argue is going to be the or what should be at least the NFC Championship preview, not just a rematch but a preview as the Niners come to within a game of the Eagles 
for the number one seed in the NFC. Now, looking at the, the box score, Brock Purdy was outstanding. 19 of 27, 314 yards and four touchdowns. Did not turn the ball over. Christian McCaffrey, 17 carries, 93 yards and a touchdown. The Eagles' passing game was not bad. Jalen Hurts was 26 of 45 for 298 yards and a touchdown. Did not throw a pick in this game. A.J. Brown had over 100 yards through the air, or 100 yards receiving. Devontae Smith had just under 100 yards receiving. However, the Eagles did nothing on the ground. They only had 46 yards on the ground, and let's face it, they have a very good passing game, but their ground game is more important to their scheme. And so, a really disappointing outing for them in that sense. Now, of course, that's a little skewed by the fact that they had to play from behind for the last half, or parts of the second quarter as well. But... Just an ugly game for the Eagles as the Niners, yeah, they had lost three in a row, but they blew out the Cowboys, and they've blown out the Eagles. And not just blown out the Eagles, they've blown out the Eagles in their own building. The Niners, really, Debo Samuel, dominant in this game. The Eagles could not contain him. Four catches, 116 yards, and two touchdowns. Brandon Ayuk and Juwan Jennings each had one McCaffrey and Samuel each with a rushing touchdown in this game. So, we look at the standings now in the NFC playoff picture. The Eagles at 10-2. They are still first in the conference, as a matter of fact, first in the league. But the Niners are just a game back of them now with the tiebreaker. The Lions are tied for second with the Niners, but the Niners are 7-1 in conference. Lions are 6-2. That's their tiebreaker there then. Atlanta in a brutal NFC South sitting at 6-6. Six and six. They're the four seed right now. So, looking at the Eagles' remaining schedule, it's not that difficult, at least after the next two weeks. The next two weeks are going to be difficult because they play consecutive primetime games on the road against teams that made the playoffs last year and at least one that should make the playoffs this year, maybe two. That's the Dallas Cowboys and the Seattle Seahawks. Sunday night football in Dallas, Monday night football in Seattle. Now, I still think the Eagles probably should win both of these games, probably win out, probably still end up with the NFC's number one seed. But, I don't know how much, uh, I look, the Niners would have to go to Philadelphia for an NFC championship game at that point, but obviously they've, beaten them in a hostile environment already, considering they've actually got a, a start, real starting quarterback. So I don't know how much that does exactly. Besides that, Eagles, Dallas, Seattle. Christmas Day, they host the Giants. That's a game they should win. New Year's Eve, they host the Cardinals. That's a game they should win. And Week 18, they're at the Giants. That's a game they should also win, assuming they're still playing for something at that point. But if... Dallas wins, I think they'd only be a game back of the Eagles. Actually, if take it back. If Dallas wins, they'd be tied, although I believe the Eagles would still have the tiebreaker. Let's see, the Eagles would be 6-2 and two in conference. Rather, the Eagles would be 3-1 and one in division. Dallas would be 4-1. and one. I take it back. Dallas would have the tiebreaker at that point, but then both teams would probably end up going 5-1 in the division, which one goes to the conference. The Eagles are 6-1 in conference. Dallas is 6-3 in conference. Eagles probably still win the tiebreaker. So there's the Eagles, and there's the Niners. Looking at the Niners' schedule, not easy either. Their next game, also Seattle. Their next game is against Seattle, rather. That'll be at home. It's a game they should win. Then they go to Arizona. It's a game they should win, but also that's a bit of a trap game because the Cardinals, I've said it before, I'll say it again, the Cardinals remind me of the Lions from two years ago where they're not winning a lot of games, but they're in every game. Christmas Day against the Ravens at home, another game they should win, no guarantees. They go to Washington New Year's Eve, maybe a little bit of a trap game, possible. Then they host the Rams Week 18. Now, Niners probably still should go 5-0, and 
but I, but I, I don't know. I, I would say the Niners are more likely to go 5-0 and than the Eagles are. That's my two cents. Now let's talk about the Jets. They had another rough week besides uh, releasing Adrian Amos, who it seemed like didn't play at all, despite being a name. They fall to the Atlanta Falcons by a score of 13-8. That's right. I don't know if that was scoregami, but that's pretty significant. After an early safety in the first quarter, Tim Boyle has been released in addition. In this game, he went 14 of 25 for 148 yards in an interception. For the record, I didn't think he was that bad. I mean, on average, he probably turned the ball over maybe once a game. It's just the upside wasn't incredible. Zach Wilson's going to be the starter again this week. I think Tim Boyle, I think Tim Boyle had more downside than Zach Wilson. I think Zach Wilson has more upside than Tim Boyle. But the the pick six is not his fault. The the Hail Mary pick six, that's not his fault. So the, the offensive line didn't help him. I'm not, I'm not going to say he's a great quarterback, but I don't think he received too much help from his, his old line or, or maybe even from his play calling. Now, Desmond Ritter for the game, still not incredible on a rainy day in, in East Rutherford. Went 12 of 27 for 121 yards and a touchdown, but didn't throw any picks. Falcons won. They improved to 500. They lead the NFC South. As I had mentioned, if, if they did not lead the NFC South, they would actually be tied for, I think, the second wild card right now. So they're 6 and 6. The Jets' chances of making the playoffs now, or, or probably even it being worth it for Aaron Rodgers to come back, very slim. They are now down to 4 and 8 on the year. So the best they can do is go 9 and 8. No. Eight-loss team has ever won the Super Bowl, so that should probably tell you enough right there. On the flip side for the Falcons, now six and six, three and zero in the NFC South. They have five games to play. Really, not a bad schedule whatsoever. They have Tampa at home this week. They've beaten them already by a score of sixteen to thirteen. They have the Panthers on the road. If they don't win that game, they don't deserve to win the division. Christmas Eve, they play the Colts. That's got to be the toughest game of the five. Then they play at the Bears New Year's Eve and at the Saints Week 18. So, I mean, there's there's no reason they can't win four, maybe even all five of those games. Let's say let's say four, actually, because ten, you got Carolina, you should win. Chicago, you should win. That could be a little bit of a trap game. Tampa, you should win because that's at home. New Orleans, give or take, you know, we'll see. Saints actually have Saints are actually the only team in that division that has a positive point differential, and I was surprised at that. Saints have a plus two. Falcons lead the division, but they're minus fourteen. So remarkable. Then one more game. I actually well, two more games I want to discuss for the week. One, the Packers defeat the Chiefs twenty-seven to nineteen on Sunday Night Football, as Kevon Nixon interception was probably the most important point in the game. I, I would argue in that. The Chiefs gave away points. The Packers got the ball at their own 35 after that pick. Had a five-point lead at 24-19. Got a field goal out of it. Turned it to 27-19. Gave the Chiefs less time. Only ended up at about the 33-yard line. I think that's the closest they got to the end zone at the end of that game. So Kansas City on the year drops to 8-4. and four, Still leading the AFC West. But a game out of the conference lead right now of course they did play they did beat the Dolphins that's significant the Dolphins are one of the two teams leading the AFC leading the AFC playoff picture Dolphins are at six and two in conference Ravens are at six and three Chiefs are actually at six and one in conference so if they were tied right now they would have the tiebreaker and the Chiefs right now have a better conference record than Jacksonville, so they have the tiebreaker over them. In addition, Kansas City, really interesting game this week. They will play at Buffalo, or at, at home against Buffalo, rather. Then their schedule's not that bad. They play at the Pats. They host the Raiders. Could be a little of a, of a trap game, perhaps. The Raiders have competed with the Chiefs for competed with the Chiefs for a little bit last time they faced off. 
They play the Bengals at home. Not an easy game, I, I would I would say. We'll, we'll get to that in a second. That's New Year's Eve, but still a game they should win. And then they play at the Chargers Week 18. And the Chargers look like they are quite possibly down and out. So Chiefs should win at least two, probably three, of their last five games. Their toughest test is going to be Buffalo this week. But it's at home, and it's a Buffalo team that is somehow well, at least entering the season, I would say, somehow 6-6. Six and six. So the Chiefs still very much in it for that one seed in the AFC. Green Bay, meanwhile, that's a huge victory for them. They are 6-6 six and six on the year. They are tied now for that wild card, that second wild card spot. You know, that's, that's three games behind Dallas, but they're tied for that second wild card spot with the Vikings the Rams, and the Seahawks. Minnesota right now has the tiebreaker out of the four. Then Green Bay. So Green Bay is in the playoff picture right now. They they really control their own destiny at this point. And their schedule, not awful. They play at the Giants on Monday Night Football. It's a Giants team that has won the last two games. But it's still a game the Packers should win. They play Tampa, but it is at home. That's next week. At Carolina Christmas Eve, that's a game they absolutely should win. Play at the Vikings on New Year's Eve, and it's the Sunday night game. So that should be really interesting to watch. And then they play the Bears at home week 18. So should win at least three games. Packers are in a good spot right now. The Viking game might really decide a lot. And the last game I want to talk about this week the Bengals defeat the Jaguars on Monday Night Football on the road, 34-31 in overtime. Now, unfortunately, Trevor Lawrence suffered a high ankle sprain. That's going to be the highlight, or really the low light of this game. That's going to be the the, the thing that people to which people pay, pay the most attention. But what really should not go undiscussed, or, or, or whatever, is that Jake Browning looked outstanding. Against, you know, not a bad Jacksonville defense. He went 32 of 37 for 354 yards and a touchdown, did not turn the ball over. And so Cincinnati, looking at their remaining schedule, Cincinnati is 6-6. Six and six. They are a game out of the playoffs. I mentioned there's that, there, that four-way tie, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Indy, Houston, for the last three playoff spots. Cincinnati's right outside that picture. The Bengals' remaining schedule is not easy, but it's it could be worse. They have the Colts, but that's at home. They have the Vikings, but it's also at home. So, you know, we'll we'll see about that one. Very interesting. It should be really fun to watch that one. As a matter of fact, that is a Saturday game against the Vikings. Then they'll play at the Steelers. Not a gimme, but also it's Mitch Trubisky instead of Kenny Pickett. Do with that what you will. At Kansas City. That would have been a much better game with Joe Burrow. They'll probably lose that one, but Kansas City's clearly a bit vulnerable if they're going to lose to Green Bay. Then they host the Browns Week 18. Another game they should win. Cincinnati very well could win. Yeah, look, let's rule out the Kansas City game. Let's say they could realistically win four of those games and end up in the playoffs at 10-7. and seven. So I wouldn't rule the Bengals out at this point. Jacksonville, they have Indy and Houston on their, on their heels. And that's besides just fighting for the number one seed being a game back. Now, Trevor Lawrence apparently has not been ruled out for the game against the Browns on Sunday. I, I don't know. It looked pretty bad. C.J. Beathard was limited in practice, apparently with a shoulder injury. And a loss to the Bengals. I don't know how great a situation you're in if, if he's your guy anyway. I think I'd rather be Pittsburgh or Cincinnati in terms of a backup QB situation. Also, Christian Kirk is expected to miss multiple weeks, maybe the rest of the year with a core muscle injury. Now the Jags play at Cleveland. Not easy. Against the Ravens, Sunday Night Football, that'll be tough. At Tampa, 
so they should get a good road crowd. But it's at Tampa on Christmas Eve. Game they should win, but you know, we'll see. Host the Panthers Christmas Eve, or rather New Year's Eve, and they play at the Titans, who shouldn't be playing for anything, week 18. So Jaguars very up in the air. And we'll see how that turns out. Moving on to the hot stove, the Yankees, who have been reportedly tied to Juan Soto, have made a couple moves already this week. They claimed Oscar Gonzalez off waivers from Cleveland, which I think is a very underrated move. A very underrated move. I think two years ago, when Cleveland looked like a team, I think the team of the future, very good pitching, rather low scoring, but just smart singles hitting team. Oscar Gonzalez, I think, was, was the one guy who really had a ton of power in that lineup. And so the Yankees, who are a team that has you know, a, a boatload of DHs anyway, I know. But I think he is a good pickup. They also acquire Alex Verdugo from the Red Sox, only the eighth trade, I think, since... I think it's the eighth trade since 1969, since the, the the playoff expansion, that the Yankees and Red Sox have traded with each other. The Yankees acquire Alex Verdugo, who once, I'm pretty sure, called out Yankee fans for certain things. I don't remember what exactly. Traded for Alex Verdugo for in exchange for Greg Weissert, Rather significant, you know, somewhat significant bullpen figure for the Yankees. And right-hander pitchers Richard Fitz and Nicholas Judice, I believe that ha- I believe I have that correct. But first off, this is a win for the Yankees, I think, because you know, I don't think any of those guys has remotely the upside that Alex Verdugo does. And I as far as I can rem- as long as I can rem- as far as I can remember, Greg Weister is the only one with major league experience out of those three guys. And I've never even heard of the other two, to be honest. And then the other thing is, even though there was frequent speculation that Verdugo was just going to be trade bait for Juan Soto, that's not the case. The Yankees have said they will keep Alex Verdugo, who is perfect for that ballpark. He's a, he's a complete player, good power hitter, good pull hitter, who will love the right field porch. I think he's an and he's a good, you know, he's he's a guy that you want in your clubhouse. So, there is a reason, and, and nobody's. There are very few players in this day and age that are as good as Mookie Betts, who, by the way, will apparently be playing second base from the Dodgers full time from now on. There is a reason that Alex Verdugo was maybe the biggest part of that deal coming back for the Red Sox. He's a guy who's been a quiet, steady presence in that lineup for the last three, four years, four or five years, however long it's been since they traded Mookie Betts. Very, very important to them. The Braves have acquired Jared Kalenic, Marco Gonzalez, Evan White, and Cash in exchange for right-handed pitchers Jackson Kowar, I hope I have that right, and Cole Phillips. They end up trading Gonzalez and Cash to the Pirates for a player to be named later. Good move for the Pirates because they are a team like the Mariners, that I think has been reluctant to spend in past years, and they've gotten a lot of flack for it, rightfully so. Now, Mariners fans are claiming that this is a a fire sale, perhaps. It's, it might be a good pickup for the Braves. Kalenic was a highly touted prospect, most notably with the Mets organization. Hasn't necessarily lived up to it to this point. But take a take a waiver on him, take a flyer on him. Seattle, I, I guess they're starting fresh. I mean, that's an organization that is maybe a sleeper World Series contender. But I've mentioned time and time again that it's a, a team that an organization that has frustrated fans in terms of ability and, and willingness to retain star players and to spend. Not to say Jared Kalanick's necessarily a, a star player, but they don't. It's, it's hard to say that often that they really go for it. The front office, I mean. The Mets have signed Jose Iglesias to a minor league deal with a spring training invite. I know he's 
got to be what like a decade into his career, but I think that's a, a, a waiver worth taking if you're the Mets for the upside that he has, especially as a fielder. And I think he's a, he's a good hitter, I thought, in Boston, but definitely a good fielder in Boston than Detroit. They also take a shot in the dark. They signed Luis Severino to a one-year, $13 million, $13 million deal. Severino was looking like ace material, actually, for, for a few years with the Yankees, but then he suffered a couple injuries, and this past year in particular, he just looked pretty rough. So Mets taking a waiver. Again, rebuilding team. We'll see what happens there. I think I think it's worth it. It's it's worth the shot. They also signed Joey Wendell, who I think could be I think this is a really good value deal. They got him for two million dollars for this year. That's a guy who could play all over the infield and is is a good hitter to all fields. Really good utility guy. Really really good fielder and I think I think that's a good signing for the Mets for their bench. The Orioles, by the way, also signed Craig Kimbrell to a one-year deal, and there's an option for 2025. Excellent deal for a team that already had Felix Bautista, who's been named the American League Reliever of the Year. And last thing, baseball-wise, Jim Leland. This is long overdue. Jim Leland has been elected to the Baseball Hall of Fame by the Contemporary Era Committee. He was named on 15 of 16 ballots. Now, he was the only the, the only one who was enshrined uh, out of this entire group. This is some really disappointing news to me, is that Lou Pinella was not inducted. He was one ballot short. He was 11 for 16. You need 12. But Jim Leland is one of the great managers of all time and definitely one of the greats. In, in recent history, iconic manager for the Pirates, leading them from 1986 on, led them to the NLCS three consecutive years. That was the, a team that was anchored by a, a pre-steroid pre Barry Bonds, Andy Van Slyke, Doug Dravek, re, a really underrated team that just came up short with the Braves a couple of times. Most notably, the whole Francisco Carrera, Sid Breen, 92 NLCS. Team that came within one win of going to the World Series twice. Then won the World Series with the Marlins in 1997. A team that was just a strange collection of guys, somewhat you know free agents. But good young ball players like LeVon Hernandez. Team that stunned Cleveland in seven games in the World Series. And then maybe had his... Biggest, maybe had his biggest stint with the Detroit Tigers, led them to two American League pennants over eight seasons, also managed Cleveland, or rather Colorado, for one year. But really, an, an iconic manager who originally, I did not realize this, originally signed as a player with the Tigers organization in 1964. So, Jim Leland, long overdue in getting to the Baseball Hall of Fame. This is news that baseball fans will love to hear. Speaking of news that just kind of reaches across the spectrum, Tristan Jari becomes the 17th goaltender in the history of the NHL to score a goal in the Penguins' 4-2 win on the road against the Tampa Bay Lightning. Most important thing, my broadcast partner with the 87s, Anthony DiPaolo, pointed this out. He said, I think it was the, the puck, he pointed out, I think the puck didn't bounce until the opposing faceoff dots. So, pretty much in the slot, between, right between the circles. So, I mean, he shot it, he must have shot it, what, three quarters of the way down the ice at least, before it actually touched down onto the ice. So that's one of the more impressive goalie goals I, th I think I've ever Scene. Remarkable achievement for Tristan Jari. In the NBA, we are moving on tomorrow, as I record this, December 7th, will be the semifinals in Las Vegas for the NBA in-season tournament. The Bucks just came off a win over the Knicks, 146-122. to 122. 
really truly remarkable. I don't think it was that the the Knicks were bad defensively. I think it was the that the Bucks were just that dominant. That the the look if you think hey the Knicks are going to roll off 122 points they're they're probably going to win but 146 for Milwaukee and that's despite outstanding performances by Julius Randle had 40 he could have been better in terms of ball carrying but ball handling but Julius Randle had 40 for the game Jalen Brunson was again dominant but the Bucks win they host the Indiana Pacers or well technically host the Indiana Pacers they'll play the Indiana Pacers. In the semifinal, the Pelicans will take on the Lakers. Milwaukee should win the whole thing, if not for the de facto home court for the Lakers. Milwaukee really dominating from from three-point range as well, particularly Chris Middleton and Damian Lillard. Outstanding from the outside. And that's the thing. That that was probably the difference, actually, in this Bucks-Knicks game. The, the, The only one that I really got to see is that the Knicks did much of their work on the inside, and the Bucks kept knocking down three after three after three. And before, let's see, 1981, I think, when the three-point line came in, this this might have been a much more even game, but dominant victory for Milwaukee. And I expect that they should win the in-season tournament, although it's funny enough that Giannis Antetokounmpo apparently did not know until the post-game interview that they would be getting more money. So, uh, Last thing, Tim Howard has been elected to the U.S. Soccer Hall of Fame. He will be inducted on May 4th. He received 95.8% of the vote. He was the 2004 Premier League Goaltender of the Year. Reached the World Cup with Team USA twice. That's perhaps what he's best known for. Leading Team USA to the World Cup in 2010 and 2014. His iconic performance and a valiant effort in a 2-1 loss to Belgium in the knockout stage in 2014 in extra time. Really a, a remarkable career. Played played club soccer, played with professional teams in the U.S. for nine years at the beginning of his career and at the end of his career with the, with the Metro Stars and then at the end of his career in Major League Soccer, and in between that time, played in the Premier League with Manchester United and Everton. Perhaps the, got to be the greatest American goaltender in the, in, in the 21st century, in the new millennium, and perhaps the greatest American goaltender, at least for soccer, all time. Well, that does it for us this week. We thank you so much for your time and your consideration. Wish you the very best. Please, if you're not already, listen to us on Spotify. And thank you so much if you, if you already are. Try to interact with some of the questions that we actually offer. And just the, the, the fan interaction is, is super important when it comes to, when it comes to that. And, and let us know what you want to hear. We always appreciate fan input. That certainly helps. Well, that does it for us this week. Thank you so much for your time, and we'll see you next time on Sports in the Waiting Room.